0: This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out
1: Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you.
2: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello,
0: everybody, and welcome back to the New Books and Film, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jules O'Dwyer, the host of the channel, coming to you today from Cambridge in the UK. And today we're going to be talking to Karen Redrow, Professor of Cinema and Modern Media at the University of Pennsylvania, and Jeff Scheibel, Senior Lecturer in Film Studies at King's College London, about their new co-edited volume, Deep Mediations, Thinking Space in Cinema and Digital Cultures, which came out with the University of Minnesota Press. For decades, the concept of depth has been central to critical thinking in numerous humanities-based disciplines, legitimising certain modes of inquiry over others. Deep Mediation considers both how and why this is, as scholars today navigate the legacy of depth models of thought and vision, particularly in light of the surface turn, and as these models impinge on the realms of cinema and media studies. The 18 essays contained in this exciting collection seek to understand the decisive but evolving fixation on depth by considering the term's use across a range of conversations, as well as its status in relation to critical methodologies and the current mediascape. Engaging contemporary debates about new computing technologies, the environment, history, identity, affect, audiovisual culture, and the limits and politics of human perception, deep mediation's offers a timely interrogation of depth's ongoing importance within the humanities. So, hello, Karen, and hello, Jeff, and welcome to the show.
1: Thanks. Hello. Nice to be
2: here. Hello, and thanks for having us.
0: So let's start with you, Karen. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself uh, in terms of your intellectual formation, uh, how you found yourself uh, in the field of film studies, albeit within an art history department, and a little bit about your current and previous areas of research?
1: Yeah, well, I grew up in Liverpool and Manchester in the UK, and went to Cambridge University as an undergraduate, and then did my graduate work in an English department at Princeton University. Uh, But my dissertation, uh, it began as a book on uh, the Victorian novel. And as part of that, I started working on Victorian magic. And um, it was really a chance conversation with the Swiss scholar, Elizabeth Bronfen, who was visiting Princeton. Who said to me over coffee, um, "If you're working on magic, you should take a look at film," um, which I did, and it really redirected my whole dissertation, uh, which became my first book on vanishing women, magic, film, and feminism. So, um, you know, I, I think that was a kind of primary turning point for me. My first job was at the University of Rochester, teaching film studies, and then I, when I came to Penn, I moved into a history of art department uh, that was has also been really formative. But I think one of the things with this book that has become really clear to me is that a very important part of my own political formation was the fact that when I was growing up in Liverpool and Manchester, uh, the minor strikes were taking place. Uh, there were the protests in both Toxteth and Moss Side. Uh, I went to high school in Moss Side. And my family met regularly with um, a minor, Edgar, who would come and, you know, we would you know, collect in our neighborhood, we would collect food and resources. And so this was a real, my grandmother's Welsh, uh, This were the, my own work on some of these depth questions ended up being very personal uh, in a way that was kind of great to return to.
0: And that's something that you talk about so brilliantly and so eloquently in your essay, which I'm sure we'll get to shortly. And Jeff, could you possibly tell us a little bit about yourself too? Um, I noticed that there's a transatlantic connection here, albeit in reverse, um, but it'd be great to hear a bit more about your own background uh, and your current area of research.
2: Sure, yeah. So it is um, some sort of inversion, I guess. But yeah, I'm American. I um, studied film and media studies as an undergraduate at Swarthmore College and grew up in Philadelphia where Karen now um, is teaching. Um, And then I did a PhD in film and media studies at UC Santa Barbara. Um, I joined that program as part of the first cohort of graduate students that they um took in there which um was a very exciting time where we were um all you know sort of I think they were all excited to have us um and to have you know graduate students to work with and and we were all really sort of engaged in conversations about what the current and latest um directions in the field are and how it was um changing and expanding and all sorts of directions. Um, And then after that, I did a um, postdoc at Concordia University in the film studies department there. My research project proposal for that postdoctoral position um, was to study depth and use it as a lens to think about the history of film theory. So I I thought that that would be what I worked on, but then I ended up taking the time to um, revise my dissertation into my first monograph, which was about um, punctuation and um, digital culture and contemporary cinema. Um, and then sort of just set aside the depth project for later. And actually it was there where I think I met Karen for the first time because um, she came and gave a talk at Concordia that, and so that was the first time that we crossed paths. And then I taught for two years in the cinema studies department at SUNY Purchase um, outside of New York City. Um, And then, and my book was published then, and then I began sort of returning to depth. And while I was there, I gave a talk. Um, I was invited um, very generously by colleagues at University of Pennsylvania to give a talk as part of their cinema studies colloquium, where I gave a paper about depth. And then Karen and I sort of realized that we were, you know, from very different angles and different perspectives, um, both ultimately interested in questions of depth and what the stakes are um, for depth for the field more generally. So that's sort of where our conversation um, and collaboration began. Um, And then soon after that, I took on a job at um, King's College London and have been here in the film studies department for over five years now.
0: Yeah, and I I guess there are really interesting affinities with both of your works insofar as it's, it's really looking at the nexus of, cinema, whether analogue cinema and the digital, or, or cinema and, and media studies more generally. Um, so maybe that's something that we could draw out over the course of the conversation.
1: Yeah, I think that's definitely a point of connection with our work, but I think we do it in different ways. And that has been really, um, for me, a great part of doing this book is to understand that that bridging of these terms of cinema and media and the way that, ways that they open out into each other can take many different forms and I've learned a lot from working with Jeff in that way and indeed at that talk I can remember sitting in the audience and thinking about the question I had and really being like unsure like I think this is related to what I'm working on but it seems so different is it and I think the book in part is exploring those differences that kind of um, spin out from this term.
0: Well I think that's really interesting because it seems like depth is a term that has so many potential resonances. And this is something that you draw out really strikingly in the introduction to the book, uh, which makes reference to, for example, the notion of the deep state, which has gained a particular kind of notoriety in the present moment, through to um, debates in literary criticism that look at these binaries of depth versus surface to think about how to approach literary texts, but also in the field of the visual uh, and the role that depth of field has played in thinking about cinema's spatial and temporal parameters. I think you do a really wonderful job of tessellating these multiple meanings of depth in really expansive ways. So as a way to open up the topic of the book, I was wondering if you might tell me a little bit more about the critical stakes of approaching film through this lens of depth. Um, So what questions, what objects, and what methods it might bring into view?
2: Sure, I can try to take a stab. But, I mean, it is so expansive, and I think one of the... um... Difficulties of this project is is precisely how expansive it is. So sometimes it can be hard to to wrap our heads around um, everything that we're talking about all at once. But I'll, I'll do my best to get in there a little bit. Um, but the so the stakes of I mean we're I guess we could say like we were very curious to ask what the stakes are of of turning to depth because it um, I think one really crucial um, stake for us is disciplinary, right? Thinking about how um, depth can serve as a lens for thinking about the history of the field of cinema and media studies especially, and how it sort of has served as this recurring concept um, throughout the history of um, thinking in the discipline from the early days of film theory, you know, through its evolution, through to the surface turn and more postmodern critiques of um, of depth models of thinking. Um, and it, it, I think we were especially interested in sort of tracing that history a little bit because I don't think it's something that has, has really been um, synthesized in a sort of book length study. Um and we were also interested in it because it does seem like in the past decade or so there, there's a sort of return to depth that is um shaded in very different ways and you know is more related to to new kinds of depth related to um the deep networks of, com- of computing, um um deep time and turns to um media archaeology. Um and also um deep space and media infrastructures, right? So it seems like there, there are all of these in the extraction, um, you know, becoming a way to rethink key terms in the field. Building
1: on some of what you're saying about
2: the stakes for us, I think that um,
1: for both, we ended up talking a lot about what types of values are embedded in um, the term depth and how that valuation relates to histories of technology and histories of aesthetics and philosophical traditions. And so repeatedly, um, we were noticing as you know there, were, there was a kind of return and reflection on the field and its discourses. Um, we noticed how regularly the notion of depth is associated with truth, with visibility, with knowability, with reality. Um, and that's something that the surface turn critiques, you know, have you know really highlighted. But that 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 was in tension somewhat with um how um people are beginning to write about in an algorithmic culture, in a moment of finance, you know, there are you know the the this sense of deep spaces, deep technological spaces are associated with obfuscation and unknowability. Um and so we were interested in those tensions as well as how The valuation of those terms goes along with it being, you know, with the the kind of binary of depth and surface being gendered, race, sexualized, and mobilized for different purposes, you know. Um, And so it seemed important for us. And Jean Maher, I think, puts this really well in her essay where she goes back to um, apparatus theory and really shows uh, the way in which, with Christian Metz in particular, his notion the, the, the notions of depth that are at play there in film theory at that moment are perhaps too homogenized and she rediscovers in dialogue with the artist Robert Smithson a sense of depth as something that is actually ambiguous and open-ended is how she describes it and I think we were interested in the possibilities of that as a way to respond to the surface critiques the surface turns critiques of depth not by defending depth but by thinking about what can depth be in this field where it has been such a persistent term without uh, it being kind of petrified and turned into a straw man, where it can o- now only ever f- function in a negative way. But in fact, how can the surface turn cause us to return to the way that this uh, mode of thinking about depth and these valuations of depth have emerged? And what possibilities are there in the past for different pathways? Uh, to emerge different pathways of thought through this term that were mapped early on, either in films, media structures, technologies, or conversations.
0: And because you mentioned the essay by Jean Ma, I think it's now uh, time to dig in a little deeper and and move to the first part of the, the book, which is entitled Depths of the Moving Image. And as you've both already suggested, what you're do- doing is really looking at uh, film theory in the kind of longue durée, um, so moving from classical film theory, so um, André Bazin's account of deep space, um, of the image, and, and really how it kind of catalyzes a kind of um, deliberative form of spectatorship. In Contra Distinction to Apparatus Theory, which draws an analogy between the conditions of spectatorship and Plato's cave, and then you move through to um, to think about allusions to more recent uh, theoretical work. So on the the involvement of the body in questions of uh, proprioception, and this question of movement, I think is brought out really brilliantly in uh, Jordan Schoenig's essay, particularly. So um, why don't we start with the the first couple of essays, which. Uh, in many senses, quite historical. So Catherine Rochester's work on avant-garde cinema and, and questions of, of, of space, of geometry and projection there, uh, through to the essay by Jordan Schoenig uh, entitled Locomotive Views, which is not only interested in depth of field, but also lateral and horizontal movements across the, uh, the plane of the cinematic image. Who'd like to start to think in a little bit more detail about those two essays? Um, sure,
2: I mean... Yeah, I mean, I, I guess we sort of thought that we would, you know, we we went through some, you know, part of editing a book is spending, you know, lots of time just figuring out how to group everything together and how to order all of the the different essays that are a part of it. Um, so we, um, you know, went through many different sort of possibilities um, ways of ordering the book, um, but eventually settled on beginning with this section that is more on um, classical questions, uh, you know, that of, of film studies about the moving image and perception and spectatorship and film theory. Um, and so, so those first few essays, especially sort of you know, again, because it sort of allows us to sort of trace the history of depth um, for thinking about um, the history of film studies. Um, so, so these two essays are both thinking about motion, right? Jordan Shonig's essay, you know, builds on early cinema scholarship by Tom Gunning to think about um, the the train view, like the view from a train, and, and lateral motion, um, and how um, that relates to you know what he discusses as flatness of the moving image. And Catherine Rochester also looks at interwar animation to to look at what she calls flatness. So, so those first two essays, I think, are especially thinking about um, the sort a sort of tension between depth and flatness. Um, um, and again, sort of returning us to our early moments in film history um, that we thought could sort of like propel us, you know, it, obviously we w- wanted to avoid any, th- a lot of the the strength of the collection, a lot of the strength of the essays in the collection, I think, are the ways that they sort of um, traverse old and new media at the same time. So it sort of resists anything too easily chronological but I think that you know there is still by beginning here a sense of some sort of um chronology and importance of early film history um a way to emphasize the importance of depth and thinking about these earlier moments. I guess I would maybe jump in there and you
1: know uh just to talk a little bit more specifically about this opening essay of Catherine Rochester's, which is deeply archival. It draws on the Bauhaus Archive and really a kind of real, uh, exhaustive um, archival study that Rochester has done of the materials uh, of Lotte Reininger, you know, kind of really bringing into English language scholarship a whole different view of Reininger's work and importance for the avant-garde, um, for the film avant-garde. Um, and It's so interesting to me in that essay, uh, the way that, you know, she ends with um, a kind of uh, conclusion about where and when the um, possibilities of polydimensionality um, and virtual space are articulated within film history early on and how that is achieved in part through a debate between, uh, you know, conversations about abstraction and narrative and the ornamental, and how that is both raced and gendered and very much, uh, you know, um, uh, in dialogue with a very male avant-garde. It's very much about the relationship between painting and cinema. Um, But I feel like that conversation and the kind of questions that she is asking is in part only made possible in our field at this moment by the work that scholars of Japanese anime have done. And, you know, it is the way that, for example, Tom Lamar Mark Steinberg are thinking about things like layering um multidimensional spaces in anime and the ways in which those spaces have been uh the reception of those spaces by uh, European oriented film scholars has been reductively understood and needs to be reframed within a context of um Japanese archival work um that makes possible a new vocabulary for thinking about filmic space that can then open up conversations that in a way have seemed done. Uh, And so that it's those kinds of uh, returns through different lenses or informed by different ways, different possibilities of ways of thinking and and different conversations. And they are explicitly conversations across both regions, historical moments and cinema and media studies uh, that seem to be like the enriching force of our field at this moment and make it, you know, super Mm. exciting to to pick up on
0: one of the, the themes that you gestured to um, slightly earlier, which was this relation between abstraction and a kind of disinterest in questions of gender, which I think is is really um, interestingly kind of problematized here, it really brings me to thinking about Jean Ma's essay. You think of the scholars associated with apparatus theory as really being kind of called into question um, by more recent thinking on the gendered body, on uh, minor affects. So ennui, boredom, sleeping as well, which I know is uh, uh, the subject of her, her forthcoming monograph that, uh, that this is really drawing on here.
1: Which is beautiful, by the way. A beautiful book. (laughs) Yeah, I was wondering if you could
0: tell us a little bit more about the broader context of this work.
1: You know, I I do think that um, Jean Ma's um, essay is really coming out of the monograph that she's just, you know, has has completed and is forthcoming from um, California Press soon, I think, um, that really thinks about what would it mean to think about um, spectatorship not through a kind of... uh, finger wagging um, emphasis on the alert spectator, but through uh, the lens of the kind of sleepy spectator that filmmakers like Kurosawa or Warhol or, um, you know, um, some of the people that Jean celebrates in her essay, you know, the sense that there is another cinema, another mode of cinematic spectatorship that is uh, dreamy and uh, moving in and out of states of consciousness. And I think this is a brilliant intervention into the way that we think about spectatorship. It's much less rigid. Um, But um, I love the way that um, Ma's work is uh, both invested in, in the history of a discussion of spectatorship within the field. Um, And within philosophy, more generally, and uh, moving across lots of different types of aesthetic experiences, different filmmakers, and using those experiences and the way that sleep and spectatorship is manifested within different films that she's looking at and artworks, uh, to fold that back into a renewed frame for um, thinking that helps us, you know, one of the things I saw over and over again in the process of Reading essays that were contributed to this book, but also writing, co authoring the introduction and my own essay, was this sense of like absolutely surprising returns of like going back to things that you thought you knew and being like, wait, that's not what it says at all. And there's something about the solidification through anthologies and summaries and textbooks um, that summarize different moments in our field that, you know, I think it's good for fields in general to keep revisiting those primary texts uh, that is not about necessarily misreadings, but it's about the way that different historical moments and different media moments function like spotlights on different aspects of those areas of thought that perhaps we're either not ready for or we miss or are not... Uh, fully understood and perhaps not fully developed, but when put in dialogue with other moments, other places, um, other voices, um, take on new meaning and open new portals into then the whole way in which we narrate
2: um, our field. That reminds me of um, a moment that when we were writing together, Karen um, came up with this really brilliant analysis, like when she was discussing, and I think it was in the introduction to this section where we were sort of reviewing the history of film theory, and you return to, um, you know, what would normally be this like throwaway moment from an essay by Stephen Heath, where he mentions Jaws, and you talk about how that's, how like, there's this other, his, how it, you know, how if we hold on to his analysis of Jaws, like we can sort of use that to open up all of these sort of speculative other histories of film theory that were never um, explored related to um, atomic warfare in Japan and, you know, all of, you know, and different ways of thinking about depth and vertical terms. Um, so that, that was one of the sort of joys of co-writing when, when you have, you know, when you have these insights and get to sort of share them with each other. But and in, in terms of um, Jean Ma's essay too, another another thing in in bringing these essays together that was so interesting to me were the sur- the not only the surprising sort of returns but also the surprising connections across multiple essays so for um for example um you know, I, th- I think Jean Ma's essay resonates in really fascinating ways with um, an essay that comes later in the the volume by Jennifer Fay on sleeping, where she talks about, um, she looks at recent, like, dream science research and talks about how, and and the title of her essay, which is so great, like, Banker's Dream of Banking, um, which talks about how actually what, you know, we're we're in... Debted to this sort of Freudian model of dream analysis and think they stand for all of you know and then interpreting them right, which is so much a part of you know the history of thinking about depth hermeneutics. But um, in fact, you know, dream scientists today are really fascinated by the idea that bankers dream of banking and teachers dream of teaching, and actually, like what we dream is 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 you know what we do and. She uses that in a really brilliant way to, um, to read of the film Yella by Christian Petzold and um, to, to sort of push back against a sort of um, deep hermeneutics. Um, so that, that's one point of connection. Another really interesting point of connection that, you know, you can find in um, Jean's essay is, you know, just a more sort of, geological approach to thinking about um, film and media studies because she returns to the site of the cave, which is um, the deep space. And then that, of course, resonates with um, other essays in the book about, um, about, you know, Karen's on mining, and, and so on um, underwater, um, deep ocean essays, um, which there are a couple of. Um, and yeah, and of course, yeah, sorry, go ahead. And
1: no, I was just saying planetary depth and, you know, both Carl Schunover and Parika's um, essays, uh, you know, that kind of, are, you know, uh, really, I think all of this building on traditions that, uh, of scholarly traditions that are, you know, very present in the field of media studies through people like Lisa Parks, uh, Karen Kaplan, Laura Kurgan in architecture, this like vertical um, mediation, as Parks calls it. Um, But that perhaps have, you know, those conversations in a way have been um, uh, understood as a kind of critique um, and at odds with the mode of cinema, you know, film theory, attention to the image, um, close analysis, those kinds of things. And I think our book um, and the scholars that we brought in are really um, people who are existing in a, a bridge space and thinking about how to build a conversation in dialogue with that. Um, you know, um, I also, you know, in the course of kind of preparing the book and, you know, reading essays and feeling like I need to go back and keep reading the prehistory of these different fields that so, you know, at one point over the summer when we were co-writing, I remember sitting in my basement, like with the, almost the entire basement filled with all the books of film and media theory that, you know, I thought were relevant and just kind of reading my way through them and finding these things like Stephen Heath's essay. Um, and I should have mentioned Stephen Heath was actually the person who taught me the Victorian novel at Cambridge. I feel like there was some kind of osmosis that prepared the ground. <laughs> for It's like, uh, um unknown influences that happen um but you know you know rereading uh lisa cartwright's work on medical technologies and her argument that medical technologies have a penchant for flatness um and thinking about what is actually built into the technology uh in terms of what is uh, what types of image are possible to make and how that shapes how we think about the body about gender um and about what we're looking at and how then that shapes the theories that we develop, um, but um, I don't know that that um, those things are very exciting to me. And when Jeff mentions, you know, phase, um, you know, c- continuity in a way of the discussion of dreaming, it comes up in such a different way uh, from the ways that we've encountered dreaming, uh, you know, in both Mars essay and phase essay. But I think they brilliantly show that that difference doesn't have to lead to a kind of petrified rejection of earlier conversations, but that there's something very productive uh, in terms of understanding how we got where we are in our own uh, kind of economic and technological and work structures um, in thinking about uh, how we get from one mode of thinking about dreaming to another and what that tells us about uh, our own moment.
0: Before moving to the second section, um, there is the, ch- the chapter four uh, by Jin He Choi, which is entitled On a Lonely Planet, Feeling in Depth. And I guess there are two points of connection that I saw here with Jean Ma's essay. First is an interest in questions of affect. And uh, secondly, as you were saying earlier, th- there's a lot of revisiting of film history, but there's also a lot of uncovering um, of names that might not be familiar to us, uh, such as uh, Michel Dufresne within the phenomenological tradition of, of film studies. Um, so, yeah, I wonder if you have any comments on, um, on Jin He Choi's um, essay. And really thinking about depth um, in an affective sense, as well as yeah. in purely well, I, spatial I terms. Y-
2: you hit the nail precisely on um, what I would say too, which is that it was, it was just, her essay was useful, I think, for illustrating the range of possible ways of thinking about depth, because she returns to Michel Dufresne and his concept of feeling in depth and in traces a sort of a a very under tapped genealogy of film studies like going through to Vivian Sobchak and Merleau-Ponty that I I thought sort of really threw into perspective the the, the, just the variety of ways that we can um, explore new avenues for thinking about depth and film theory um, um, today. Um, and yeah, especially beyond sort of spatial concepts. And, and I, th- I think the concept from Dufresne that she picks up on is this idea of feeling and depth, right? And what it sort of means um, in terms of interiority and um, the, the possibilities, but also I think the sort of limitations of, of using that concept to um, approach cinematic aesthetics. Um, so she, she sort of thinks through the, both those possibilities and challenges in relationship to, um, you know, two very canonical films in Film Studies, 2046 by Wong Kar Wai and Sans Soleil by Chris Marker. Um, and, and yeah, so I, I think it, it's, it, you know, like so many other essays in the volume, it just sort of takes us, you know, on a new tour of, of ways of thinking about depth.
1: Right. And I think, Jeff, it's interesting that you talk about these films that uh, Jin Hee Choi chooses um, as canonical in film studies. Because one of the things that I love about these essays in this collection um, is that there can be films that you're like, OK, yes, these are canonical, when you're flipping through the um, table of contents, But then you see that these are the films that have been chosen to think about depth. And you're like, what? <laughs> you know uh you're uh turning to one Kawai to think about depth okay um or chris marker you know that's very surprising um and it is that choice that combination of uh you know um of films that don't seem to be the go-to film you know in fact they may be the films that one might think of going to to think about flatness or surface um but opens up the other of thought, you know, that's so exciting.
0: This really brings in, I guess, the the, the binary um, between kind of questions of surface and depth, which, as we've already said, has been a, a kind of major preoccupation of, of literary criticism and of post-critique in, in recent years. And I think it's worth saying for readers that in addition to the essays themselves, uh, you do a wonderful job of Synthesizing a great number of kind of theoretical debates, um, film studies in media uh, and and literary criticism as well, um, and and here in part two, you are interested in, as you say, the surface turn, so really questioning a kind of value laden conflation between the surficial and the superficial. Here, you start to see a bit more of an interest in in questions of politics, questions of the geopolitical. I am thinking particularly um, about Jeff. Your um, essay on a really interesting juxtaposition of Citizen Four with Citizen Kane um, but also with Alessandra Rango and Lauren Arnett's essay on Jean-Luc Nancy and Claire Denis's essay and, and film respectively L'Intrus. So yeah, I was wondering if we could kind of move into this general area and this this turn to the geopolitical which I think is particularly marked in this set of, of essays.
2: Jeff? Sure. Um so, so my own essay, as you mentioned, is is a sort of reading of Citizen Kane alongside Citizen Four, which um, I, I sort of stage to, to illustrate the range of possible ways of thinking about depth. But also, uh, you know, in that essay, I'm especially interested in how they're both marked by what we could think of as different kinds of depth effects or effects of depth and how they both lend a sort of epistemological weight to the films, I guess. So thinking about how you know, obviously, Citizen Kane has been, um, you know, is a, another canonical film that I think we would all and that many other contributors do mention as being the, the sort of like a sort of go to example for studying depth of field. And, you know, Greg Tolan's cinematography has you know, been widely discussed by Andre Bazin and various other film critics and theorists. You know, it, it gets back to this idea of of and the question of how depth is related to valuation. Um, so not only certain modes of thinking, but also maybe certain texts, right? And and how we might how for example, might Citizen Kane's depth of field lead us to think that Citizen Kane is a, a deep film or or something worth our attention, right? And so similarly, I was really fascinated by, you know juxtaposing maybe in a little bit of a like promiscuous way with a, a much more sort of recent um, film by Laura Poitras, Citizen Four, about Edward Snowden, which I suggest is also marked by depth effects of information technologies and what, and what I refer to there as like informatic depth, since it was a film that through its very production, relied on the deep web, right? And through um, deep networks um, to evade state censorship, um, to sort of aid in the making of history. Um, And so it was striking to me that to think about how a film like Citizen Four could also be marked not only through the sort of technical effect of depth, but also a more sort of epistemological one where we also talk about the film as being profound and, and... deep and important, right? And so, you know, thinking about that authority and um, legitimization, I think it, it was one of the things I wanted to apply pressure to there a little bit. And and yeah, so, so that comes in a, a section that's more generally thinking about depth hermeneutics um, and surface turns. So getting back to this, you know, question that I think applies to the humanities more broadly of how deep structure models have legitimized certain modes of interpretation when we do our work, right? Thinking about how Freud's idea of the subconscious or Marx's idea of the superstructure, right, are, are sort of seen as these ways th- through which to, to really understand what's going on, we have to look deep and we have to dig deep. and 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 this has sort of led to, you know, where, where we want to look at how this leads to um modes of interpreting texts and um, value and the kind of value of the own our own work and what we do when we sort of write about films or other media objects and texts um so so I think the essays here are all sort of applying pressure to that but also thinking about it at the same time and and I don't think there's yeah it's hard to sort of um, generalize because I think. We are also trying to just leave each essay open to to exploring its own depths.
1: Maybe I could could I jump in here a little bit, or is that um, because I think it's interesting that uh, Jeff mentioned you know some uh, kind of slightly promiscuous connection between Citizen Kane and Citizen Four because I think there there is something about um, you know. You know, one could think of it as a cheeky associativeness in the methodology um, through the word depth, um, but one could also think about it as something almost like surrealist in its um, um, exploration of something like chance connections or moments of intersection um, that function as a disruptive force, they dislodge uh, those connections dislodge in a moment, whether it's, for example, bringing together the concept of depth with films that one might associate with surface, for example, and seeing what happens then. There is a kind of dislodging of normative fixed narratives within the field of how we understand media and aesthetic experiences and histories. um, And that that, I think, has generated a kind of curiosity within the book um about so for me, rereading it in preparation for this um interview, I was looking at Alessandra Rango and Laura Arnett's essay and thinking about the way that, in the wake of Jin Hee Choi's um introduction of the idea of depth of feeling, uh, they then you know highlight the way in which the language of interiority and the language of feeling is itself inescapably marked uh, by paradigms of colonial violence, and that Claire Denis's film finds a way of giving uh, of visualizing that um, and making that accessible to thought in a way that then made me uh, think rereading this book in a way that I don't think I even had. I, like, I knew that this essay was doing something that was fundamentally challenging to our whole project. And we told the authors that, and it really made us um, think about what we were doing, but in the wake of rereading that essay, it makes me want to think about what would it mean to trace Um, for example, a a Black feminist history of the language of depth uh, or or an engagement with the language of depth and surface. And it would take me to people like Margaret Natalie Crawford, who I mentioned um, at some point in the writing, and the the way that uh, surface can be mobilized in different ways, that uh, it can be mobilized um, by the Black arts movement as a radical form of solidarity and coming together, or it can be a form of white appropriation of style. Um, And I think that that um, essay that you mentioned by Rango and Arnett is a very important disruptor in a way within the book. And I do think that the book has those kinds of tensions in it uh, that suggest that it is not a complete project and that it is an invitation. It's a kind of series of portals that we hope will spin off in different directions as as a kind of catalytic experiment.
0: Absolutely. And I think that one of the other things that this essay brings out really wonderfully is this, this question of foreignness and questions of legibility and illegibility, which I think are at the heart of Claire Denis' cinema, but also resonate really brilliantly with the subsequent essay, which is by Pooja Rangan, on thinking about deep listening, so moving beyond the, the optical, moving to the auditory. And subsequently, uh, the essay by Erica Balsam, both of these essays use questions of depth really to trouble um, the kind of epistemological conditions of whether that's kind of veracity of um, a a claim to asylum, for instance, I'm thinking of of Lawrence Abu Hamdan's work, but also... um, the question of veracity in relation to experimental uh, documentary as well. Um, that's a kind of another through line that I found when reading this section. I'm conscious of time here, but moving through to, to part three of the book, I guess I was inter- interested in this question of um, what's recently been called kind of extractive media. You think of the work for instance of Nadia Bozak, um, of Brian Jacobson, people who are really interested in visual media and its entanglement with broader kind of geopolitical and uh, ecological actors. Um, So um, the way that cinema itself um, partakes in logics of extraction, logics of exploitation as well. And and this is really brought out through uh, a wonderful collection of essays. So we have essays on the ocean, on the seabed, we have the question of planetary scale that comes out in Nikola Storyskielinski's essay and also in Karl Skunova's as well. Um, so, yeah, I wonder if one of you could talk to this, um, you know, moving from the geopolitical, but also moving to geo humanities more generally.
1: I, I mean, I do think that, you know, exactly the, you know, Brian Jacobson's work, um, uh, Macarena gomez Barras's work, um, The Extractive Zone, um, uh, you know there is a project um that Priya Jay Kumar and at USC and colleagues are leading right now uh to really think more fully and broadly and um in all kinds of different dimensions about the relationship between extraction and media um over a long and um, global history. You know, it, it's um you know one of the things that um the scale of this um I think raised for us as we got into it was the necessity of collaborative modes uh, within this and the realms that this takes us into in terms of the science of deep space um, and um, the, you know, kind of expertise around, um, you know, kind of mining technologies or, you know, the technologies that are used to um, map and understand uh, some of these extractive logics, but then also the, you know, histories of colonialism and their ongoing impact, including in the discourses that we are using to try to make sense of those histories and the entanglements of that. Um, I think, you know, it it became clear, I think especially in this deep space, deep time section, the massiveness of the questions that, um, uh, you know, uh, this term opens out onto and the many different directions that takes us into. So I really feel like this is just a kind of... um, uh beginning um of a- com- or a sample of a com- set of conversations that are happening in many different areas um I do think there is a an important relationship and you know this comes to the way that we chose to organize the book um we had all kinds of different possibilities, and we had a lot of conversation about the relationship between part three and part four because there seems to be a very important relationship between. The emerging modes of knowledge production uh, that are being developed in relation to these scales of physical space um and time, and uh, the question of like whether we're equipped within the humanities to deal with processing either the way that knowledge is generated within those technologies or the types of histories and geographies and cultures uh, that start to become activated and that our training you know, is not adequate to that. And so I do think that collaborative um, study is is one thing. And I I feel like Taylor Arnold and Lauren Tilton's essay is a good example of something that both tries to explain um, where the limitations on what we as humans, what the human mind or human vision is able to process and how we might start to develop methodologies that allow us to articulate questions about what we can't see or know. You know uh, that there's a whole conversation about how to begin from what we don't understand. Uh, that they are, I think, trying to articulate. And their essay is different from other essays in the book a little bit in the a similar way to the way that Rango and Arnott's essay stands out as a disruptor. I feel like Arnold and Tilton's essay is another one of those disruptors that we welcomed. But when I first read that, I you know, find myself thinking, I don't even know what they're talking about. But it was interesting to work through that and see how important it is to work through those kinds of discourses and be in dialogue with them. Uh, so I was really grateful to be part of a book that had these different areas of unfamiliarity.
2: Yeah, and I, I think another um, essay in that um, section... Um... That gets at the sort of the question of like obfuscation and unknowability. That's really interesting is Lisa Hans' essay on um, on seafloor mediation, right? And thinking about what she calls dark mediation, um, and and you know ways in which when we approach um, depth as a concept that allows us to think about um, the like the deep sea and, you know, all of this, all of these like unknowable spaces, how it sort of makes us ask, you know, it reorients our, our questions to um, think about inscrutability and what the limits of our, you know, knowledge are, as Karen was just mentioning. But I think like the the deep sea is also a really interesting example of that. And I also love um, Nicole Staroselsky's essay in that section about Um, because it traces uh, this really interesting history of how the ocean got it, like how she explains the ocean got its depth, right? It It wasn't something that we sort of like naturally thought of as depth, but it was actually something that was very, the concept of the ocean being deep was something that was very much invented when, Deep sea cables were laid um, at the bottom of the ocean, and then how she looks at the, these this archive of um, cable repair texts from the 1920s and 1930s where they were um, competing with wireless technologies and trying to sort of downplay the the deepness of the ocean to sort of allow um, deep sea cables to continue being laid but so like it 's this very interesting history of how depth and how we think about depth changes in relationship to um, space. Mm -hmm. That also has some
1: of my favorite images in the book, the uh, mermaids and swordfish, um, along with uh, the puppy bagel (laughs) image that's in, I think that's Brooke Belial's essay. Um, But it was actually great to see like, um, the range of images, just the artwork across the book, uh, what that alone, it, it's like a, um, a visual essay on how we might understand concepts of visual depth.
0: And I guess the final question about part four, which is about deep networks. And I guess I'm interested before turning to the topic of, of deep fake pornography, which I'm sure we'll, will we'll end with um,
1: always a winner,
0: <laughs> <laughs> really, really the, the, the kind of scholarly community that you, really assemble in this book and looking at people in the the digital humanities more generally who are slightly detached from the traditional forms of film theory that um, and I feel comfortable within. Um, it also is worth saying that my partner is a researcher in AI and, in, and works on neural networks. So it's really brilliant to have those conversations about this chapter too um, and really opening up the readership to media studies more generally. I don't know, do you have a sense of, of what the reception of those two essays, the first ones were, so Arnold and Tilton's essay, but also the one by Brooke Belisle, which I think is really brilliant in that it finishes things off by thinking about the long durée of media, and, and really, it, it's kind of a metonym for the expansiveness of the collection as a whole.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the the way you framed it, it was really great. I mean, I think, you know, th- this last section is called Deep Networks, and um Yeah, is really interested in sort of thinking about how the accumulation of data that we have in the computer age forces us to reorient questions we have about vision and scale that I think are, you know, it's so it's especially striking to think of the ways that depth of field historically is associated with like being able to Like being able to know what we see and to like see layers of space within a a frame or an image clearly and to make sense of them. But how with deep networks, you know, the image becomes something very um, different. You know, there are questions of computer vision that I think are are getting raised there and, and questions really about the limits of human perception that I think pose very difficult questions for those of us who are invested in in um, studying and making sense of images, like what does it mean when we can't do that? So you see, for example, quite a few um, essays in the volume turned to the work by um, Trevor Paglin, who, um, you know, poses these kinds of questions in his um, photography and other media artwork of like how we don't necessarily know that there are data centers when we look at an image, or how there are drones in the sky when we look at an image of the sky, right? Like all of his um, work poses these questions about the limits of visibility today. Um, And I think it, it, you know, that was another striking point of connection across. um, So like I know Brooke Bellisle, for example, turns to one of his video works um but she i think her essay is also uh, yeah I, I love her essay, and I think it's also just fascinating for thinking about the aesthetics of the grid right and the the sort of um epistemological mode of of um, approaching images through a a grid you know she looks at um uh data sets but also goes back to Moybridge and thinks about how these are also sort of data sets that we're attempting to break down um the image and splice it up spatially and temporally in um you know ways that really resonate with um computer vision today.
1: Mm. Um
2: I, w- I would just add to that that
1: I think that uh, when you asked about the reception of these essays, um I imagine for many of the readers who might be drawn to this book because of most of the people in them as recognizable within a particular strand of the field, that, that you know, Arnold and Tilton's essay I think might be discomforting um, or can, you know, um, uh, produce a sense of um, uncertainty about whether or not it belongs on a syllabus or something that other essays might naturally belong on. But I I feel um, in my own work and um, in terms of my place in the field, I feel deeply committed to the productivity of these moments of discomfort, whether by engaging disciplines outside of cinema media studies and the tension there, I think that that allows us to see um, things that we can't see on our own. Um, And I think the field has always benefited from that. Um, But at this moment in particular, I feel like for the humanities in general, we have questions and objects to think about that our methods don't equip us to deal with. And I feel like... um, theory is one of the um, discourses that allows us to commit to thinking in those moments where we're not equipped to do so and to keep doing it anyway. I think, you know, Hannah Arendt's thinking without a banister is something that I think many of the people in this book try to do. Um, And for me, that's uh, what that section of the book really embodies.
0: And I guess, Working working off that final point that you made, um, one of the wonderful things about the final contribution to the book, which is a roundtable on questions of realness in deepfake pornography, is precisely how it moves us into... Karen, as you were saying, kind of a place of kind of intense, well, I, I guess, kind of ethical and even kind of juridical discomfiture, not knowing the status of the images that we're dealing with and, and troubling those in quite interesting ways. But also, um, I mean, one of the wonderful things about this book for teaching in the future is I imagine these questions of deep fake pornography will actually um, revitalise and recatalyze these questions of indexicality that, that are foundations of our discipline.
1: And realism, yeah, and fantasy.
0: Yeah, in, in the way that you know, perhaps Linda Williams's work is so brilliant for the same reason insofar as it's you know, very exciting material, um, but it really shows the kind of ethical stakes of, uh, of these questions of indexicality and of, of realism in a new light. So I'd like to welcome kind of any, any final comments that you might have on that, that essay or, or on the um, collection as a whole as we draw to the close.
1: I mean, I guess I, I would say... Uh, the only thing that I would really want to say is that this group of contributors, which is an international group from many different fields, they were absolutely awesome to work with, and it was—I felt like everybody was on board with the excitement of the conversation and the project, and that that was very energizing and a real privilege to work with all these people. And it was—you know—I highly recommend co-editing a book with Jeff. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Editing with Karen. And yeah, just to give a shout out to who who um, is on that closing roundtable, it's Shaka McLaughlin, Susanna Passanen, and John Paul Stadler. And yeah, they, they were very fun to work with. And I think it was also, we also really liked the idea of closing the book with a conversation, right? Rather mm-hmm. than um, an essay, like it's important to us to sort of leave on a, an opening rather than a closing, right? And to, you know, leave with a conversation, right? Mm-hmm. To you know, perhaps be taken in new directions. And surely, you know, there's going to be new developments and new scholarship on deepfake pornography um, and politics that are going to raise new new questions.
1: Mm, Including engaging with questions of rights discourse um, uh, that I think uh, will be very important in relation to questions of fantasy and sexual freedom. It's always good to end on a note of sexual freedom.
0: Well, thank you so much, Karen and and Jeff, for joining me today and talking about your recent book with the University of Minnesota Press, Deep Mediations, Thinking Space in Cinema and Digital Cultures. Thanks very much for talking to me today.
2: Yeah, thank you. It's great to talk to you. Thank you, Jules. And thank you.